If you didn't know, I brought my own little cheering section today. Um, how many of you think? You know, when you go to a new place, a new country, you kind of learn new things. How many of you came to Wilmore from outside Kentucky? Anybody? Yeah. Okay. You remember your first time here and you learned a new language, y'all? Um, <laughs> you learned to eat new food, you know, like hot browns, fried pickles, and grits. You experience new things, and hopefully within the communi this community, you're learning new things. And being new people, you are transformed. We often think when we go to another country to do ministry, we are changing people, helping them. But what they don't tell you is how much you're transformed in the process. You know, I was transformed within this community of believers to really understand what it meant to be part of a community, what it meant to be truly family and brothers and sisters. My story actually starts not in the jungles of Borneo, but in Southern California. Like many of you, I was raised Methodist, my grandfather was Methodist, my parents were Methodist, my siblings and cousins, we all were raised in the Methodist church. But one night when I was 16, my father got up, turned off the TV and said, your mother and I are getting a divorce. No warning, no fights, no nothing. But in that moment, my life changed dramatically. My response was to say, if this is Christianity, I want no part of it. And I decided, God, you do your thing, I'm going to do my thing. But you know when you say that to God, he really doesn't leave you alone. And he shows up in quite unexpected places. While I was at university, one of the things that was on my heart, I wanted to be, believe it or not, a mountaineering instructor. So one summer I was accepted to and able to go to the National Leadership School. We spent 30 days hiking through the Rocky Mountains, and we got caught in a three-day snowstorm. Wyoming, by the way, has three seasons, June, July, and winter. But I remember after those three days, I was sitting out in this snow-colored valley. And I always felt close to God when I was outside. But I remember being there as the stars were brilliant. I felt like I could reach out and, t and touch God. He was so near. And in that moment, a, song, a line from John Denver's song went through my head, talked to God and listened to the casual reply. And what I realized is I couldn't. I didn't know how. And my heart just sunk. The next year, God showed up on the softball team. I played for the university softball, and there was a new gal, and she was different. She wore this fish thing, and I knew what that was. I was raised in a church, right? But what impressed me was her work ethic. She worked harder than any of us and would never play a single inning. But most of all, she loved everyone, and everyone loved her. And I was curious what made her tick. So we spent time together. I asked her dozens of questions. Then we became roommates. And because I wanted to be like Judy, I did the things that she did. So she got this Bible study, 10 Steps to Christian Maturity. And being a little bit competitive, I decided I would do it faster and better than her. <laughs> so I got the book that she skipped over, which was How to Know Christ Personally. And as I was going through that book, alone in my room, Christ's love just overwhelmed me, and I knew that I wanted to and receive that love and to follow him. Three years later, that love brought me to the jungles of Borneo. You know, 
he, and then I began to understand and live in this culture. I was assigned to a group that had been Christians 40 years. Let's see, do we have some slides? There we go. For three years, I found myself there, and we spent two years, of two of our first years, um, language and culture learning. Again, learning to eat food. What had to prepare me is some of the differences between the cultures. I remember one of the first weeks, I had brought some things to the village, my colleague and I, and I, I had a hammer, my hammer. You know, right way, I like to build things. Well, somebody came over and said, can we borrow a hammer? And I said, sure, I have a hammer. I should have clued into the pronouns. So a week later, I needed to use my hammer. And I went to my friend and I said, hey, could I borrow my hammer back? And they were like, oh, well, so-and-so borrowed it and so-and-so borrowed it. And it's out in the field today, but the village headman has a hammer that you could use. And I was like, I was angry because I didn't have my hammer. But one of the things about this culture is I learned that it was a group culture and our possessions didn't belong to ourselves. It belonged to the community. You know, we spent a year, little did I realize the full implications of that until I started working the Toggle Translation Committee. For a year, I went around to all the little villages, a sponsoring agent, uh, agency had um, paid for the salaries of translators, so we began translation, but I realized quite quickly we needed readers as part of the translation checking process. We translate, then we send it out to people who had been trained in translation principles, and they review it and give us comments back. So I went around, there's about 60 little Tagal churches around, so I spent about two weeks going to all the churches, trying to find people who would be interested in being readers, and there was nothing. And I'm just like, Lord, if people don't care about it, why should I care? You know, you write one of those letters that you're not supposed to back to your supporters, like, okay, what am I doing here? Month, you know, this is before email, so two weeks there, two weeks back. And my churches responded, we're praying. And Lord brought to mind this person I had met called Jimmy Liebau. And I found directions to his um, house, and he came out of his house, and he began to explain to me how they needed a committee of Tagals to be part of a translation committee and make sure that the translation get done. And with one week, he had called all the leaders in, and the Talgal Translation Committee was formed. So we have to train the readers. So I set up, being very Western, I had funding, so I found a place in the city where there was water, electricity, and we had a translation training workshop. If some of you reckon, this is Dr. Danny Archea. And so I gave out the scripture to people and sent them back to their village to check it, Six months later, we met again, and no one had done anything. I thought, come on, guys. So the next meeting, actually the committee met without me to plan the next checking session. I came back to the village, they had it all planned, they were going to have it at a church, and they had it during dates that I could not be there. And I'm like, wait a minute. So we went out to the village, I said, Jimmy, I have to be there to do the translation uh, principles checking. And so we went back to the church and talked to the pastor to change the dates, and we were driving out back to the city, and the Holy Spirit just said, that is not your decision. I stopped the Jeep, 
turned to Jimmy and said, I am so sorry, that's not my decision. And we went back and changed it. One of the things that I learned about the committee is they needed to call me something, right? They don't call by name, so I needed a title. So they wanted to call me pastor, and I said, no, you can't call me that. And they wanted to call me missionary, and they couldn't call me that. So they ran out of names for Western outsiders. So they went to, I was young, single, and much younger than all of them, so they came up with Ali, which meant younger sister. And I began to learn what it meant to be a younger sister. What I didn't realize when the translation committee had planned this event, they planned it at churches where the church could host and feed us. So we could have 300 people there helping check translation. The other thing that they did was they did it during school vacation so that the most educated part of the Togo population, the teachers, could be, participate in the checking and translation. The other thing they did is by having it in the village, everyone could participate. They put the, the ones who were trained as leaders of groups, so we had young and old and men and women, illiterate and literate, participating in checking and translation. In fact, they wrote all the churches and said, if you don't have somebody at the checking session, you can't complain when we're done. I could never say that. But what was incredible to me is they decided the church they had at was a sick church. Only young people were coming. And so these leaders who had gathered decided they would hold revival meetings. So 8 o'clock in the morning till 4 o'clock, they took translation. 8 o'clock at night, they started revival meetings. So there was preaching. There was singing, all in toggle. And then what we saw is people started coming. We would start with 300 and 500. All the people from the district the church was in came to these revival meetings. And not only that, we began to see people bring out their black magic kits to be burned, and people were baptized, 25, 80, 100. And as these things progressed over the next five years, I got to watch as God's spirit used the Toggle Committee to bring revival to the Tagala churches. It was amazing to watch God work, and I got to just go along for the ride. But you know, God had other plans for me as well. You know, I think sometimes when you lose a father, either through divorce or a death, or they walk away or they were distanced, there's kind of this father-shaped hole in our heart. And I had that. And I remember one day as I was checking um, I was checking the translation Mark 10 through 17, 31. You know, it's the story um, where rich man and the disciples get, who then can be saved? And Jesus responds, no one who has left home, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, children or fields for me and the gospel will receive a hundred times in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, and with them persecution and, and eternal life. And I was like, oh, he missed father in that second list. So I went to my commentaries and... There's no father in that second list. You see, God is to be our father, not someone here on the earth. And I turned to the translator and said, Father's missing in this second list because God wants to be our father. He said, We know that. <laughs> you see, in our culture, there's an adoption ceremony for adults. And so if there's a young man who doesn't have relatives, he can't participate in all the feasts and bride wealth exchanges that occur throughout his lifetime. 
And so on a given day, he can go up to someone and say, I want to call you father. And if that person agrees, then on a given day, they bring a water buffalo or a wild pig and they kill it. And the young man puts the blood on all of the, um, the man's family, second, third, fourth cousins, everyone, about 200 people. Then the older man takes the blood and puts it on the younger man and says, this blood gives you the legal right to call me father. And he said, we knew from the beginning, John 1.12, that the blood of Christ gives us the legal right to be called God's children. You know, for the next four years, I learned when it was to be a younger sister and being a part of my brother's family. As a younger sister, I learned that I could not tell the committee what to do. Um, often our meetings meant that I would go, we would drink coffee, we would eat a meal, I would drink more coffee, and then I'd be able to mention things that need to be done. Well, we were getting done. There's several checks to translation. One of the final ones is what we call uninitiated reader check. That's basically we have to make sure people who have not been a part of the translation process can understand it. So I tried to explain this. In two years, I would explain it. I've been watching translation. We're done, and there's this big column. Not done. So we're sitting in the office one day, and he says, now you told me about this. What was that check again? I said, well, we take out scripture translation. He goes, what a great way to do evangelism. We can't go up to an older person and preach to him, but we can read the scripture and say, is this good toggle? So I'm like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> well, again, not my idea, not the way I planned it, but two weeks later, I came out to the village and there was two, these two young guys. And I'm like, who are they? And he goes, well, these are your readers. My what? You know the people are going to take translation out to the villages and read it and see if people understand it. So their idea, they picked 14 villages that were hostile to the gospel. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, they wouldn't let people up and log out. So every day they would take the translation and just read it to people. So they spent the whole day, you know, questions and asking questions and stuff. And so they, this went on for like two years. So finally, after two years, Jimmy said, okay, they're ready. So they asked the question, who would like to be a follower of Christ? 300 people were baptized that day and seven churches were planted. Not my idea. But in addition to this, I learned some incredible lessons about community, and let me just spend, just, I just want to share four things that I learned about what it meant to be brothers and sisters in Christ in a group-oriented culture. First of all, it redefined my identity. I was no longer Sue, I was Jimmy's younger sister, which was great. When I was doing research out in the villages, I'd be looking at Jeannie, oh, you're related to Jimmy. Well, he's my brother, oh, you're family. And I was welcome into the villages. But, you know, the other thing I saw is we have a new identity as Christians. We're no longer Kentuckians and Californians and Kenyans and Koreans or whatever in Democrat or Republican. Um, but we're brothers and sisters. Not only does the, the spirit indwell us, the spirit marks us as a community. I didn't really understand what that meant until I was translating these verses in 1 Corinthians 13. Let me give you the English translation 
of Tagal. We couldn't translate love as an abstract noun. It had to be a verb. And it changed the way I saw scripture forever. This is just a part of it. All people who love other people, they are patient with them. They are kind with them. They are not envious, nor do they speak boastful war, and they are not prideful. They have a good character toward others. They do not seek their own good. They do not keep a wrong record of wrongs, nor are they easily angered. People who love other people do not delight in evil, but delight in truth. Have you ever thought of the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control are all relational qualities? You know, I thought I was really spiritual until I got married. <laughs> but it's not, it's not our name that will let people know we are a spirit mark. It's our relationships with one another, how we treat people, how we treat one another. Are we patient? Are we kind? Um, it is, as scripture says, people will know us by our love. So... It redefined my identity of brothers and sisters as a community marked by the fruit of the Spirit, the characteristics of the Spirit. You know, that extends to people, the DMV, people in Walmart, standing in line. Does those mark our actions toward them as well? That's how people will know we're followers of Christ. It also redefined humility. I don't know about you, but in, you know, it was like, oh, don't brag, you know, you know, uh, false modesty. Oh no, I'm not really good at that. What the Toggles told me taught me is humility is understanding that everything you've been given is from God to be used for the community. I remember when I went back to the village after earning my first doctorate. And the first thing the committee did was sat around in a circle discussing how we were going to use our doctorate. <laughs> All right, so on this stage, how many doctorates are our doctorates? But it means that I don't have to do everything. I don't have to be good at everything because, you know, playing the organ, that's our gift. Right? You would not want me leading worship, but I am grateful that we can lead worship. So, a new kind of humility that rejoices in the gifts of others, but also realizes that our gifts are for others as well. So, new identity and new humility. Finally, it redefined privilege for me. You know, we all have access to resources, goods, etc., some sort of privilege. And we kind of, in some ways, we, we kind of don't want to acknowledge our privilege. But what I realized working among the Toggles, it wasn't for me and my use, it was for others in the committee. I had connections to funding that I used for the committee so that we could pay for the boat and the gas for two years. I had funding that I could get 50 sets of literacy materials ready for churches to use. I had privilege that I could give the Toggles a voice in the broader global Christianity. I brought them places where they could tell their stories. Privilege is not something to be afraid of, but privilege is to be used for others and recognize the privilege we have and then use it for the good of others. Finally, redefine identity, humility, redefine privilege, and most of all, redefine my purpose. You know, I thought I had been sent to 
uh, translate the scripture. But what God showed me is I was not sent for a task, right? Tagals very quickly showed me that I was sent to a people. And to be a part of that people and be able to use my gifts and talents and help where I could as a younger sister. You know, I, there were a lot of things that the Toggle churches wanted to do. One of the nice things about having these 60 little churches, it was able to combine all those resources. So although I was sent to do translation, we also did evangelism and music and literacy and anything that the churches wanted, listening to their vision and being part of that people and purpose. You know, when I came here, and Greg will probably remember that, I thought I was coming to teach. And as a professor, we have certain classes that we have specialization in, and when you have several, I could teach. But I kept asking, what are my classes going to be? What are my classes that I'm going to teach? What will be my classes? I remember, you know, even, even for several years, it was like I still didn't have a set of classes. And then I finally realized I wasn't sent here to teach certain classes. I was sent here to a community. And be a part of a people in this community. And perhaps some of you are kind of, I know God has called me to Asbury. I know Asbury, I'm called here to this degree program, but I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with it or where I'm going with it, but I know I'm supposed to be here. God hasn't called you to a degree, degree program. He's called you to the community. This community. You know, we're called to this community to be brothers and sisters, to learn to be family. God has called you here. Let me just say, welcome home.